I was the champion of my neighborhood, of my friends, of my church growing up in hide-and-seek. Nobody beat me at hide-and-seek. I was a chubby little kid. I wasn't always the best in tag because I wasn't the fastest. I leave that to people like Danny and all those you know, little skinny fast kids. But you put me in a game of hide-and-seek, and I was patient, baby. Like I could crawl up in the smallest attic, in the smallest crevice that you never even knew was there, and I would stay until I died or people forgot the game was even playing before I came out. And then when I became a teenager, I was so good because um, we played uh, Capture the Flag a lot, you know, being 15, 16, 17. Anybody play Capture the Flag? That's like the adult version of hide-and-seek. And I remember hiding so well one time with my youth ministry. Uh, we were playing in this big field of Christmas trees uh, over off of Highway 301. Uh, this guy had a Christmas tree farm that went to our church. And we're playing. That's the greatest place to play Capture the Flag. Like, it was just the coolest. And I remember hiding so well in Capture the Flag that somebody stepped on me. And didn't even know I was there. That's how good I was. I was good. I was good. I was good. Anybody else you're good at hide and seek? Tonight, 7 o'clock at the church. I'm just teasing, but that would be fun, wouldn't it? That would be fun. Maybe that, maybe that needs to get on the calendar, Pastor Tina. I don't know. But, man, I was, I was good at hide and seek. Here's my question for you. Is God hiding? Is God hiding? It's, a, it's an interesting question because we're in this apologetics series, and I want to talk for a few moments about the divine challenge, or I'm sorry, the challenge of the, the divine hiddenness of God. That there is a hidden aspect of God that we have to address. In fact, William Lane Craig is the foremost apologist on planet Earth, in my opinion, and probably most people's opinion. And William Lane Craig would say that the divine hiddenness of God is the greatest objection to God that is out there. So what are you talking about? The divine hiddenness argument basically says this, that if God really wanted you to know him, if he really wanted you to believe in him, then he would prevent your unbelief by making his existence so obviously apparent that nobody would ever have unbelief. This idea that, that, that God should be so very obvious that you would never possibly not believe. There would never be an atheist anywhere, right? Why, why doesn't God on every one of your DNA cells write made by God? Little copyright image, God, right? Yahweh, right? Why doesn't God do it that way? Why doesn't God at night in the heavens with the stars write out, Jesus loves you, repent and follow him? Why doesn't he do that? Why, why is that not more obvious? Why isn't there a neon sign in the middle of the day proclaiming God's goodness to you? That's an honest question. And a lot of people struggle with a finding God in the universe. In fact, in my apologetics group that I lead, uh, there's, a, there's a guy, he's a seeker. He's not a believer yet. He's a seeker. And he comes to our group and he says this is one of his big objections because he still has a hard time believing in God. It's this idea of divine, divine hiddenness, that God would hide himself. And it's an honest question. And, and when you really look at it and start to understand it, that is essentially blaming God. It's a moral argument against God. It's, it's saying that God, if you really loved us, you would provide more evidence, charging God as immoral, saying that unbelief is God's fault. Um, there's a couple quick things I want to say about it, then we're going to really unpack it in depth. Um, this is completely based on this viewpoint of how much evidence is needed or should exist compared to exists. So, so, so somebody might say there's not enough evidence to exist 
for me to believe in God. But yet there's somebody else, most of you in this room probably, would say there's evidence everywhere of God's existence. So which one is accurate? It's completely a subjective test based on a person's individual belief system how much evidence is out there. How much evidence is needed? That's a question I would ask you. How much evidence is needed? Because we believe in a lot of other things as Americans without a lot of evidence. I know people that believe in Bigfoot. Chupacabra. And it's not just from the the commercials, right? I I know people that legitimately believe in Bigfoot. For whatever reason, there's been a rise lately. There's probably a lot of people in this room, you believe in aliens, right? I'm not going to pick you out. I'm not going to make fun of you, but you're crazy. But you believe in aliens. I tease Pastor Josh all the time. Pastor Josh Cunningham, our kid's pastor, believes in aliens, and we tease him about it all the time. Some people believe in the Loch Ness Monster. Scientific people, some people believe in a multiverse. There is way more evidence for God than there are any of those other things, and some of them have very little to no evidence at all, like a multiverse or like aliens. There's just an idea that they could be, but yet people will believe in that. And so I believe that there is considerable evidence for God. There's the origin of the universe. We talked about that in Brandon last week, but there's the fine-tuning of the universe. There's the morality. There's the, the resurrection. There's people's personal experiences. There's all kinds of evidences for God all over the place. And uh, even in the things that we just take for granted, like the laws of nature and things like physics and logic and, and, and reason and these different things that are invisible, mathematical laws that are invisible that nobody created, somebody discovered. They were there before they were ever discovered, and we keep discovering these laws of science. Um, um, but Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher and apologist and mathematician, he would say it this way, that God has given sufficient evidence to those with an open heart and mind, but insufficient vague evidence to compel those who have closed hearts. Compel those who have closed hearts. All right, let me give you two Two responses, and this is going to make up most of my message this morning, and I promise you it's going to be really good if, if, if you're already like, what, this is boring, this is science class, just stay with me. Two responses, the first one will be quick, the second one's going to take a preemptive part, and then the whole thing. The first response is this, even miracles don't cause people to necessarily believe in God. The Old Testament, constantly Jesus was doing, or say Jesus, God was doing miracles. Uh, all the way from the Red Sea on, you see these radical miracles, and disbelief constantly came on the other side of those miracles. They believed for a moment, then all of a sudden they disbelieved. They believed for a moment, then all of a sudden they disbelieved. Jesus actually told this story of Lazarus uh, wanting to come back from the dead. This is not Lazarus, his friend. This is a parable. But Lazarus going to hell and wanting to come back from the dead and said, if I come back to life, my family will believe. And Jesus said, even if you are resurrected and come back to life and tell them these things, they're still not going to believe. And so, 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 Miracles alone are simply not enough, and and you see this all the time in the Bible. But the second response is a little deeper, and I want to set it up. Because we do have to admit that there is a level of God and Jesus' teachings that are very obscure, that are not clear and evident right off the bat, that are not obvious. There's a level to them that are hidden and obscure. So, so what are you talking about, Pastor Brent? Let me just give you a few of them. Jesus is talking in parables. Why does Jesus talk in parables? Well, if you grew up in church, you know Jesus talked in parables so that people would understand what he's talking about. That is one answer. But then look at this passage in the book of Luke, chapter 
14, or, or chapter 8. We got a bunch of things in it, Luke. Jesus is talking about parables. He's just given a difficult parable. He's given the understanding to the parable to his disciples. And he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables so that though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. In other words, I'm speaking in parables so they won't figure it out. I'm taking you aside, these disciples, and you guys can figure it out. I'm explaining it to you, but I'm speaking in parables for all these other folks so that they don't understand. So they see it, but they're like, what? They hear it, but they're like, what's going on? I, I, I don't get it. Well, that's a very different story. Yes, Jesus spoke in parables so that people would understand easily, but he also sometimes spoke in parables so that they wouldn't understand easily. Well, that's weird for us because we thought Jesus wanted to make life easy for you. Hmm. Jesus often wanted to live in obscurity. You see this constantly where he's running off crowds, like in Luke chapter 14, verse 25 through 27. Now, this is a consistent thing going on with him. Can you go to the next slide, Luke 14? Luke 14, he says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Well, that's, that's kind of hard because you've got this large crowd following Jesus. That's what we want, right? We want the multitudes hearing the gospel, following Jesus. But yet when Jesus gets the multitudes following, he starts running them off by giving them very difficult teachings. He, he, he constantly, you see him going away, trying to get away from the crowd, escaping the crowd. And when he gets a crowd, you see him giving hard teachings so that the crowd dwindles Away. In fact, when, when Herod goes talking about Jesus, he, he asks who this guy is, and he seems to know John the Baptist better than Jesus. John the Baptist was more popular at that time, it seems to be from Herod, than Jesus was. He wasn't interested in popularity. You know, Jesus tried to hide his divinity. He tried to hide his very divinity, the very thing that we love to celebrate. Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 21. Look at this one. Once when Jesus was praying in private, this is that constant thing that happens, and his disciples were with him, he asked them, who do the crowds say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. This is called the great profession, the great profession. This is a beautiful thing. But listen to verse 21. Jesus strictly warned them, not to tell this to anyone. So he got it, right? You're the Messiah. All right, you got it. Don't tell anybody about this. And isn't that something that happened consistently in Jesus' life? This miracle happened. Jesus says, send yourself to the priest, offer the sacrifices. Don't tell anybody who did this. Isn't it funny that in our world, we always want notoriety and publicity, but Jesus was always trying to run away from it. And he constantly makes it hard to follow Jesus. We want to make it easy, but, but he wants to make it hard. Luke 9, 57 through 62 says this. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. That's a good one, right? Like if you're a pastor and this guy comes in, he's like, I just, I'm going to follow Jesus wherever it leads. Pastor, tell me what to do. I'll sweep the floors. I'll, I'll wash the toilets. I'll do anything. I just want to be close to you. And Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, you're going to follow me? We don't know where we're sleeping tonight. It's probably going to be somewhere hard, difficult. 
He said to another man, follow me. But he replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. That's a pretty reasonable thing. Like, like Jesus, I'll follow you. Just let me bury my dad first. Like, like you know, he, he just passed away. Jesus said, said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yikes, yikes. Verse 61, still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. What am I saying here? All I'm saying is that while most of us in this room would go, there's a lot of evidence for God, there also is a lot of evidence that there's a part of God's nature that loves to stay hidden. <coughs> that loves to live in obscurity. And that's weird in our world where we have a very image-based society. I'm not even sure if you do good deeds, if they count, if you don't post them on social media. Because that's the world that we live in. I'm not sure if you have a family and you don't post a picture of your family on Instagram every once in a while that you even have a family, right? It's, it's like what we do. We have to tell everybody every good deed we ever do, everything we have. We have to tell everybody. And we live in this very public image-based society while we follow this Lord and Savior who was always trying to be private and always trying to be hidden and actually sometimes made it hard to follow him and hard to understand him and purposely did these things. And he is the very nature of God the Father who also has a hidden aspect of himself across the world that it doesn't say signed by Yahweh on every DNA cell. And it doesn't light up the sky at night. So here's the question that leads into the second part and where we want to stay for a while. Why is this? Why wouldn't God want everyone to believe in him? That's an honest question. Like if, if God really did put, like, you know, made by Yahweh on your, cell, on your DNA cells and, and really did write across the sky, wouldn't more people believe in him? Right? And God wants all people to believe in him, Right? So why doesn't God make his existence more obvious? That's the apologetic argument. Well, first of all, I told you that, that just by making it more obvious doesn't mean that people will believe in him. Uh, I could also point out that, 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 that by making it more obvious, uh, people sometimes will then think, well, now God's manipulating me and forcing himself on me, and now, now I have to follow him. It's like the, the parent who's controlling the teenager, and you're going to rebel, and that seems to be the case throughout history. But I want to take it a little deeper this morning and say this. What if God is not really that interested in you believing in him? In the idea of the atheist argument that you believe he exists. Now, I do know that obviously you have to believe he exists in order to live a Christian life or to follow him or to be devoted to him. Obviously, but belief is not the end all. It's not even close to the end all. Belief is not enough at all. In fact, if you look around America today, you will even still, in the midst of our pagan culture, still see a really large majority that believe in God. But how much salt and light are they being? But belief is, is not enough. In fact, James chapter 2, verse 19 says, you believe that there's a God good. Even demons believe that and shudder. <laughs> Even demons believe in God. What if the argument 
the big problem is it is this word belief because God's not that interested in you just believing in him. If you have notes, God wants a relationship, not, near, not, not mere belief. There's a theologian by the name of Paul Moser. He writes on this subject, and he says, God is not interested in making everybody believe he exists. He's interested in having people put their faith in him. He's interested in a personal relationship with God, a personal love, a trust in God, a relationship that wants you to seek him and find him. See, God doesn't care if you just believe he exists. He cares whether or not you love him, whether or not you care for him, whether or not you have relationship with him. You know, there's, there's two great metaphors. There's two great metaphors in the Bible on our relationship to God. Two great ones. Uh, the first one that I'll mention briefly is father. Father. There's this idea of, of father. That he is your heavenly father. The other one is this idea of bride. That you are the bride of Christ. Bride. 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 Ladies, has, have any of you ever had a guy chase you that you didn't want to chase you? Any of you had a guy chase you long enough that you're like, stop calling, stop texting, and then we use this language, we are just friends. Which is usually not true because you don't actually want to be their friend at that point either. But it's a nice way of saying it. Anybody ever? If they do it long enough, if they keep pushing themselves on you long enough, there's a word for that, stalker. <laughs> a little creepy. You're like, listen dude, you best back away. Like this is enough. God is not a stalker that he's going to force himself on you, constantly going, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Are you here? I really love you. I really like you a lot. Are you going to go out with me? God is not a stalker who's going to chase you down. That's not the way it works. <laughs> he's not that kind of bride. I would say this, that, 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 that he's also a father. Romans 8 refers to us being able to call out to God saying, Abba, Father, Abba, Daddy, God. There's an aspect of God that he is your heavenly father and you can have such a closeness to him that it moves beyond just a, 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 a respectful father relationship and a deep daddy relationship that you care for me, that you're with me. I don't know that I've ever shared this publicly like in a church service. I've shared it in some small groups and things like that, but I'll never forget the time I was driving, and I was on the way to one of my prayer retreats, and as I drive on my prayer retreat, one of the things I tend to do is try to settle my mind and get in the right headspace for the prayer retreat, so a lot of times I have nothing playing on the radio, and at least not at first, and, and, and so there's no, there's no podcast going, which is what I usually listen to, and there's no radio music going, and I'm just spending time with God, and, and I just start this thing, which God always gets on my, he always gets on to me for it, but I just start talking a lot. And I'm like, God, I just, you know, really need you. And, and, and I kept saying, Father. And I'm like, Father, I really need you. And Father, we need you in our church. And Father, I need your wisdom. And Father, and I'm just doing this thing. And, and literally, I can take you to the spot on Highway 301 in Zephyr Hills as I was driving out to Ocala. I could take you to the spot on the road that the Holy Spirit inhabited the cab of my truck. And he said, why do you keep calling me Father? And I'm like, because that's what the Bible teaches me to call you. And he said, no, you keep calling me father because you've never learned of me as daddy. Because of some of the stuff in my past, in the way I picture those words. He said, no, there's a closeness 
that we need to experience, that you lose from Father. It's a respectful, it's a good term, it's not wrong, but you lose the closeness of someone who cares about you, who loves you, who holds you when you're crying, who will walk through trials and tribulations with you, who will be there to celebrate you at your sports events, the, the, the daddy side of God. He said, you know you, know you, can, you can call me dad, you can call me daddy. And he, some of y'all might think I'm heretical, I don't, I don't really care. But as I got back on the road and started driving, I, I re-changed those prayers, and I just started talking to him like a dad. Everything shifted. Everything was different. And still to this day, when I'm outside of the church context, and it's just me talking to God, I still will constantly refer to our Heavenly Father as Dad. Some of you might not be ready for that. But what if it's not just belief in Him? What if it's relationship with Him? What if it's a father-son relationship that's deeper than just a respectful image in the sky that a lot of people see or whatever that is, but it's a closeness that he cares for you, that he loves you like a good daddy, a good daddy. So you, you see this with, with both of these stories. And what I want us to see is this. In every human relationship, but especially the relationship with your bride, it becomes about learning the other person. What if God is hidden because he wants you to seek him out? What if God is not a cosmic prostitute God who's just going to bear himself to everybody? What if he's a God who loves you but wants this relationship where you seek him out, where he's going to keep revealing things over to you. What if that's really what we're talking about here? But so oftentimes, especially in the American mindset, we settle for belief instead of seeking. We settle for belief instead of stretching. You know, stretching always leads to growth. When you lift weights and you're stretching those muscles, it rips the muscles, but it leads to growth. Stretching, this, this seeking him, it shows that you're longing for him, that you love him. Maybe the reason why God doesn't always give you every answer is because he wants to know that you're willing to seek him to find the answer. Maybe the reason why he's speaking in parables is so that you'll have to figure it out. You'll have to, you'll have to strive. You'll have to stretch a little bit to show you have a relationship with him in order to figure it out. Maybe God hides himself a little bit because he wants you to pursue him. And as you pursue him, you get greater revelations of who he is. Every time you read the Bible, you get a greater revelation. As you pursue him, you get these heights, these depths, these greater revelation upon revelation. It's the pursuit of his presence that really he's seeking after. It's not belief. Everybody believes in God, or at least a lot of people believe in God. See, we don't need belief in God. We need relationship with God. And it creates this aspect of hiding and seeking. Hiding and seeking. Is it possible you've been involved in a game of cosmic hide and seek for a long time you didn't know you were in? That God will hide himself a little bit from you so that you'll seek him out. And then he'll hide his greater glory a little bit further so you'll keep stretching and reaching and longing to know more of him. See, Jesus, Jesus is a seeker. <laughs> Jesus is a seeker. Uh, Jesus comes out of the tomb and begins seeking after people. He goes and finds the disciples. The disciples were hiding behind locked doors. And Jesus starts seeking the opposite. Now you're not seeking God. Jesus is seeking you. God is seeking you. And so, so he's hiding behind locked doors. And all of a sudden he jumps in. He's like, found you. 
We, we could say it this way. I'm going to break it up and say it this way. Uh, you could say it this way. When you play hide and seek, you generally close your eyes, stick your face in the corner, whatever, and you count. One, two, three, and then you say, you know, whatever, ready or not, here I come. And you count to a certain number. And if you play like the kids, it's like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, you know, because whatever that number is, you got to get there as fast as you can. So the kids are, you know, running everywhere like roaches. <laughs> that, that's what we, so, 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 so what if, what if not only are you seeking God, but God is seeking you? What if, what, 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 just stay with, what if what you really see playing out a little bit, at least in a, in a metaphoric kind of way, Jesus hides himself for three days. One, two, three, busts out of the grave on Sunday morning, resurrection morning, and starts seeking those who will be found. And all of a sudden, he jumps behind closed doors with some of the disciples that they've been hiding from him. He jumps behind closed doors. All of a sudden, there's a road to Emmaus, and people are walking, not knowing what's going on. All of a sudden, he's sneaking around, covering up his glory, and they don't even realize it until they're eating dinner later. What if they're on the boat fishing later, and Jesus is beside the Sea of Galilee, flipping some fish over and over. They look over and go, oh, there he is, because he's been hiding from them and now he is seeking after them what if what really happened on the day of pentecost was the holy spirit came down so that he could fill each one of us to go seek the world for him what if what if you've been involved in this cosmic game of hide and seek for a long time and you didn't realize it (coughs) relationship does that let me tell you what i know about every man who's married in this room I even I just added just every man. You do not understand the women in your life. That's probably true of women too about the men. But I'm not a woman, so I can't say that. But every man, they still do. You could be. I've been married for 21 years. Last Wednesday, there are still things Ada does, and I'm like, why? I just don't get it. Makes no sense to me. What? And the mysteries of not fully understanding my wife, even after 21 years, and I know many of you are a lot longer, even after 21 years, the mysteries of not fully understanding my wife is what keeps me wanting to understand her. Could I tell you that a secret to a happy marriage is that you keep chasing your spouse? You keep seeking your spouse. You're still going on date nights, not just because you want to have a good dinner out, because you're still trying to figure her out. You're still trying to figure him out. You're still trying to seek them out. You're still trying to understand the way they think, the way they are. And when you stop seeking out your spouse in that relationship is when your relationship starts to die. When you think you know your spouse and you put up a wall, now the relationship starts to die. The problem with theology sometimes is we can get so much theology that we think we know God and we stop seeking him out and our relationship with him begins to die. It's this, it's this cosmic game of hide and seek. It's going back and forth. And there are moments where you are seeking God and then there's moments that you'll be hurting and God is seeking you. It's wild. Do you realize that you hide from God? And all the silliness of it, because God is omnipresent, 
God is everywhere and sees all. You can't actually hide from God, but yet we find ourselves doing it all the time. We do it all the time. We, we hide from God and all. And we go through something, and instead of revealing it to God, instead of bearing our soul to God and say, God, I've sinned, I've messed up, God, is, I, I, instead we try to hide it. Because you can get away with hiding it from other people. We, we do that all the time too, right? We, we hide our imperfection behind our jeans and our jackets and our makeup and our well-done hair, if you have it. All of our cosmetics, we hide from one another because we have a fear that you'll find me out. And then we turn that into hiding from God, thinking that he won't recognize what's going on either. Are y'all with me this morning? Am I making you think? Y'all are quiet, so I'm just assuming I'm making you think and you're not sleeping. And so, so, so what, if, what if just like we hide from one another, we end up hiding from God? You know, as a parent, one of the things that has broken my heart is when my kids do something wrong, and instead of running to me to help, they run and hide. Do we have parents do this? Like, they get caught, they do something they know is wrong, they, whatever, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, Brody's crying and Elijah's hiding in the closet now. And I'm like, yeah, he did something. <laughs> okay. And your kids, like, they, like they hide from you. My, my kids have never done that often, but the few times they've done it, I can tell you this, it absolutely breaks my heart. Because I want them to run to me, not hide from me. And if it breaks my heart, how much more does it break your heavenly father, your daddy God's heart, that you would run away from him when you need him the most? And when we get caught up in our sin, in our brokenness, that in those moments we don't run to God with it, we run and hide with it. And I think it breaks God's heart. He wants you to love him so much that you always run to him. That's a relationship. And we think we're hiding, just like your kid, when they're four years old, thinks they're hiding as they're quivering in the closet. <laughs> they're not hiding. You know where they're at. Emma's at an age now, she's, uh, I guess, a year and a half or so. Uh, she's at an age now where she'll do funny things, like, like do this for peekaboo, right? And when she does that, when she, closes, when she covers her eyes, I really think she believes that we can't see her because she can't see us. It's part of growing up, right? So she's like, you know, you don't exist now. Ah, now you do, right? What, what if we do the same thing with God? What if we hide ourselves thinking God doesn't see us? Thinking that he somehow doesn't recognize what's going on. And so we hide ourselves. We hide ourselves from God. We hide ourselves from one another. You see this going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You get it, you get it legit in your genes. When Adam and Eve sin, they hide from God and they try to cover it up with fig leaves. And then God comes and they ask that great question, where are you at? You know, if God ever asks you a question, it's not for his sake. He has the answer. He wants you to ponder it. Some of you, God's asking you this morning, where are you at? Why are you hiding? So, so, so God is hidden because he wants us to seek him. I think we're natural hiders behind makeup and expensive clothes. We hide behind titles. We hide behind possessions. We hide behind careers. Adam and Eve had fig leaves. We have American Eagle polos and Levi jeans. But we hide from each other. We're scared to death that each other will find us out so often. That if they really knew me, they wouldn't like me. And so we're scared to death, and so we hide behind our own things. Oftentimes we end up hiding behind or hiding from our, ourselves. 
Sometimes the busyness of life will cause you to hide from your own self. You don't want to slow down enough to introspect and see what's going on inside of you, so you'll stay so busy. We hide from ourselves by comparing ourselves to others and thinking we're better than we are because we're better than that person or that family. We hide behind fake smiles. We hide behind the lies about what we really are instead of just revealing it to God. You know, the first sin was obvious with Eve taking the apple and biting the apple, but the second sin was hiding from God. Instead of running to God, hiding from God. Think of the ridiculous nature of that. God knew. And then with that, we started to fear God's presence. It's like kids being scared of their parents. We found ourselves at a place where instead of running to God when we need him the most, we fear God and so we hide. Adam and Eve received the knowledge of good and evil, but they didn't receive the knowledge of the love of God. That's how Jesus, that's why Jesus had to come. So, so, all right, I'm going to start wrapping up. Let me ask you this big question. I've painted this picture. Why is there an aspect of God's presence that's hidden? It's because he wants a relationship with you. And I've cast this idea out. What if you are a part of a cosmic hide-and-seek game that's been going on since, the, since you were born, that God is revealing himself and you seek him, and he reveals himself, and he seeks you, and you seek him back, and you wander away from the, the fold a little bit, like the lost coin in the parable, like the prodigal of the lost son, and, and you wander away, and God chases you down, and he brings you back into the fold, but then he kind of hides some of his glory, and you start, what if you've been involved in this cosmic game of hide-and-seek for a really long time? Here's the question for you. How will you respond to God seeking you? Because if you have that fear of God, that unhealthy fear of God, not the reverence for God, the unhealthy fear of God, you'll be so caught up in your sin that you actually make your sin greater than God by focusing on it, magnifying it, and thinking God doesn't want me. What happens when God is seeking you? How will you respond? <coughs> I'm not one to know Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic words. Um, I did all I could in Bible college and still to this day to not take those classes. I just listened to other people teach me about it. So I'm not interested in that, but I was in a class with Dr. Leonard Sweet years ago. He's the foremost semiotics expert in the, on the planet Earth. And he starts talking about this word. I shared it years ago with our church. This Hebrew word, it means, or it says, hanini. Hanini. In the Hebrew, it means, here I am. Here I am. According to Dr. Lynn Sweet, he said this is one of the holiest words. It's not Yahweh. It's not the name of God, Jehovah. But it is one of the holiest words in Hebrew. It's Hanini, here I am. That's what it means. You see it throughout the Bible. Abraham is first called by God in verse 1 of Genesis 22, and he responds, Hanini, here I am. Jacob responds to the divine call twice with Hanini. Moses responds to the voice in the burning bush with Hanini. Samuel responds to the prophetic mission with Hanini. The prophet Isaiah responds when he's called by God into the temple in Isaiah 6 and sees the seraphim and all of that. He responds with Hanini. Hanini means no more running. No more concealing. No more hide and seek. Here I am. You found me, God. I'm bearing my soul before you. All of my sin, all of my brokenness. You caught me. Here I am. Here I, all I am is yours at your service. No more concealing, no more hiding. 
And I think we have to find ourselves at a place where in every season of life, we cry out, Hanini, here I am, God. Every time his voice begins to prompt you, every time you would be tempted to hide yourself because of our own sin, we cry out to God, Hanini, on mountaintops, Hanini, in the valleys of life, Hanini, in sickness or in health, Hanini, in trials and in triumph, Hanini. See, when you play hide and seek, the seeker hides himself and he counts. What if Jesus is done counting and he's chasing you down even today? That's what Resurrection Sunday was about. In John 4, Jesus greets the woman at the well, and during that conversation, he says, Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. What if across this room, the Father is seeking you, that your daddy God is seeking you out, and he's saying, come out, come out, wherever you are. What if in the middle of every brothel and in the middle of every bar, the Holy Spirit is calling out to people, come out, come out, wherever you are. Stop hiding yourself from me. Stop turning your back to me and realize I see you all along. Come on, that's better than the amens. Come on, are y'all with me? <coughs> what if that's what this is all about? You see this image in a lot of Jesus' parable. I already mentioned the parable of the prodigal son or the lost son. Luke 15, you got the parable of the lost sheep. You got the parable of the lost coin that she would, she would sell all she, or, or get rid of everything to go after it. You, you get these parables that paint this picture that God is seeking you. And then this image throughout Scripture that you are also supposed to be seeking Him. Come on, stand up with me. Got one more point and then I'll be done. But there's some of you in this room, the Holy Spirit is calling out to you, come out, come out wherever you are. He's seeking you out, no more hiding. He saw you the whole time. He's seen you the whole time. He knows the very depths of who you are. He can see all the way to your soul. He knows who you are. Why would we hide from him? Why would we hide from him? And to some of you this morning, it's no more hiding. This is it. You don't need to hide that thing or this thing, that relationship or this relationship, this possession. She's like, God, Hanini, here I am. You found me. It's this image of you are in control and I'm not. This image of at your service. Hanini, Hanini. 